Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Jan Bolwell. Jan is an actress and playwright. Her experience with death made her a strong advocate for euthanasia. She's written a play called Welcome to the Death Café to educate the public about end-of-life choices before they call to vote on the end-of-life choice bill. This is Jan's story. Hi, Jan. Hi. So tell us about the significant deaths in your life that have influenced your views about euthanasia. Well, I, immediately comes to mind um, uh, three deaths in my family. Uh, my father's death in 1993, uh, and then my mother in 2002, and very unfortunately, my younger sister's death in 2006. And all those three deaths were, um, of course, very sad in their way, and some more traumatic than the other. But it did make me reflect a great deal on death and dying. Uh, with my father, uh, he was 80. Uh, he died at home in his own bed, being nursed by his family. And if there's such a thing as a good death, I guess my father had it, really. Um, he was ready to go. He wasn't anxious about dying. And he was surrounded by us. He'd said all the things that he wanted to say in his life. So I guess that was what I would call the good death. Mm. My mother's death some nine years later was rather different, and I suppose that's still something that gives me cause for a bit of angst. Uh, my mother had ovarian cancer, uh, and when it was diagnosed, um, it was very advanced. And I can vividly remember her being in Wellington Hospital and the surgeon who had operated on her uh, had an interview with myself and my two sisters and said, look, there's nothing we can do for your mother. Um, and the other thing I, we need to tell you is that we're going to have difficulty controlling her pain. And, of course, that set alarm bells ringing for all of us. And then I said to the surgeon, well, how long do you think she's got? And she said, oh, maybe two months. And I thought, my mother is going to die in pain without them being able to relieve that pain for two months. And it was just that moment of saying, this is not going to happen. This just isn't going to happen. My older um, sister, Suzanne, is a nurse in Seattle. And um, when we realized things were very bad, she flew out immediately. But when she came out, she had in her position quite legally morphine. My sister's subjected to thoracic cramps, so she is um, prescribed morphine in order to deal with those cramps. 
So when we had this conversation at the hospital and we were looking aghast, my sister just patted her pocket and said, don't worry, this isn't going to happen. So, you know, that was um, a very uh, traumatic moment in our lives. But my sister's sureness about this is that there's no way we're going to tolerate watching our mother die in uncontrolled pain for the next two months. Somehow I just trusted Sue to think, well, actually, you know, regardless of what happens medically here, um, we will be in control of this. And at the time, you know, you're so stressed, you're so overwhelmed by everything, that the thought of your doing something um, illegal doesn't cross your mind, really. Um, You just think, how can I help this much-loved family member? Anyway, uh, what happened in the end was, uh, I suppose we put pressure on the hospital. They could see that we were very um, unhappy and stressed by what was happening. Fortunately for us, um, the Mary Potter Hospice was over the road. The palliative physician was called over, and we had what I can only call a coded conversation with that palliative physician. And by the end of that evening, our mother had died. And all I can say is, I wish that everyone could enable, as we did with this physician, the passing of our mother. But I know that's not the case, Shirley, and that's Mm -hmm. what worries me, is that people find themselves in these very extreme positions. They rely on the medical staff, whose job, of course, it is to preserve life. Uh, and they just have not got a pathway through. For whatever reason, both with my sister being a trained nurse and uh, being able to articulate what we wanted, I guess that's how things happened. And I I don't have a moment's guilt or doubt about what happened. Um, I feel, and so do my sisters, absolutely comfortable about that. With my younger sister, who is a trained lawyer, and very um, uh, very prominent lawyer in her field, uh, she had lymphoma. And uh, when the end was coming for her, uh, being the sort of woman she was, um, she said, well, this is the way it's going to be. And uh, she was in hospital. She was transferred to a hospice. And then she had... Um, a conversation with the hospice staff and she said I want to know exactly what is going to happen and I want to die at the end of this week I mean it was so typical of my sister but uh, so in a way she was with the help of the hospice staff um, in charge of her own ending and in some ways even though it was tragic to lose her so young again it was like my father that things were said that had to be said and she spoke with her daughters and her friends and us and in the end she went knowing that she had done all the things that she needed to do. So those are the three very contrasting scenarios in my life and I guess that led me to think very deeply about euthanasia and I suppose that's why I feel very strongly that this element of choice in people's lives, I'm not just pretending it's not a complex issue, but I do believe that people should have the right to make the sort of decisions that, for example, 
my my sister particularly made. Right. What would you say to a person who's anti-euthanasia who said, well, Jan, people don't have to suffer pain and death can be a painless and a peaceful process? Well, I'm, I mean, it's great to think about that, um, uh, it, that that can be the case. And, of course, for a number of people that is the case. But <clears throat> I guess one of my concerns is that it's not for everyone. And I know... Um, the, the the common mantra from from the palliative care people is that no one needs to die in pain. Well, we just know that's not true. Um, you know, that I, I just wish they'd be honest, really, and say we can't always help everyone at the end, whether that is physical pain or psychological pain. Um, <clears throat> it's just not the case. And in fact, when we did a, um, a performance of my play, Welcome to the Death Cafe, we did a preview performance at the Globe Theatre in Palmerston North. And this was our first outing of the play, which of course deals with the issue of euthanasia. Um, I was very interested that we had a Q&A session afterwards, and there was a palliative nurse in the audience. And she listened to all the conversation, and she was the last person actually to speak at this Q&A session. And she said, look, I found this afternoon very difficult watching this play. She said, I've been a palliative nurse for nearly three decades. And she said, much as I hate to admit it, I have to say that actually what you say in the play about not everyone being able to be helped by palliative care is true that we do, on the whole, manage to help people in a painless way through to their death, but that does not happen for everyone. You described to me your mother's mother's death, so your grandmother's death. My grandmother's death? Mm. Well, she... She was a woman who lived to the age of 95. And um, Gran, at the very end, it was only in the last... She was in her own home. Um, it was only in the last 18 months of her life that uh, she was in a rest home. And um, some of the family were close by, but not the daughters, who I think, had they been closer, would have perhaps eased her going. So... Um, I think uh, my grandmother outlived her time. Um, I wasn't present at her death, and nor were my mother or aunt, so I don't have a very clear picture of what happened at the end, but I think from what I've heard from the family, it certainly went on too long. Right. So you describing, other than your grandmother, a situation where each person in their own way managed to go quite peacefully... So why are you concerned that not everybody will have that same outcome? Well, I think it's, you know, it's such a significant event in one's life. And when I think about my dad's death, I'm thinking this can be a wonderful closing of a life. But, you know, if you're in an extreme <clears throat> physical or even psychological situation at the end of your life... Um, I think that's very hard to bear. I think it's very hard for families to bear 
and to have the memory of that passing that was not peaceful. I think that leaves um, a huge burden on the family that are left uh, to have to contemplate that sort of ending. What did your mum say about her her own situation? My mother... uh, my mother said, look, I've had a long and healthy life. She was nearly 80. She said, I don't want to be kept alive. She realized she knew, I mean, she was a very intelligent woman. She knew what the medical um, prognosis was. And uh, she put herself really in our hands completely to do what needed to be done. So she doesn't explicitly say, please ensure that my life ends now. But we knew instinctively what she wanted. And we'd had conversations with her in the past. Uh, So there was no question that she was um, trying to hang on, if you like, you know. And with your sister, so she died young. She was much clearer in her instructions as to, I want to die within a week. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. I mean, when she realised, and, you know, the doctors had spelled out to her very clearly, uh, she had a very aggressive form of lymphoma, and um, they spelled out to her. She had a very good relationship with her oncologist and her surgeon um, because she could talk very... um, Well, she, she, she was a highly intelligent woman. She understood the science, too, when they were talking to her. Um, so she realised that, in fact, even with more invasive treatment, which they offered her, that in the end it wasn't going to uh, help her. And I think when she received that information, she absorbed that and decided that uh, that was it, that um, her health was deteriorating, more intervention wasn't going to help. And I guess, you see, that's why hospices are such marvellous places, because, and I'm not criticising the medical profession, but in a hospital setting, their job is to preserve life. Their job is to be interventionist. Their job is to try and heal and cure. Uh, And I noticed a huge difference once we got my sister out of that hospital environment when it was clear, even though she was offered those interventions, none of them were going to save her life. All they would have done would have made her, whatever was left of her life, be incredibly sick. But when we got into the hospice environment, there was a whole other conversation that went on there, which was about, we are approaching the end this is how we're going to do it. Fiona wanted to know every detail of that. Uh, other people don't, of course. But um, suddenly we were in a whole other conversation about death and dying. Right. So these deaths motivated you so strongly that you wanted to produce a play to inform the public about these choices and make them think. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, as an artist living in this society, um, I do feel um, some degree of social responsibility. I mean, it's not just making work uh, because, you know, it's something I want to indulge myself in. And when um, 
um, the bill came through Parliament. Um, and also, I'll tell you, I had, I had followed very closely um, Lucretia Seal's story. And I guess I wished my sister was still alive as a lawyer to have talked to her about Lucretia's decision because, of course, she was a top Wellington lawyer. And I'd love to have been able to talk to my sister about um, the ethics of all that. So I think with my sister in mind, and though she'd passed five years earlier, I was very engaged in Lucretia's journey and her argument that she wanted to put forward in society and how she wanted to be in control and how she could frame that in a legalistic way that put a tremendous challenge forward. Um, so I was um, very engaged in that story. I read the book that her husband, Matt Vickers, wrote about her life and her death. And I think that was very much in my head when the euthanasia bill came forward and the decision was made that we would have a referendum on it. I suppose I just thought to myself, what can I, as an artist, do to help not persuade people as such, but to open up the discussion, to have the dialogue about euthanasia? And I think, you know, we're very reluctant in the society to talk about death and dying. It's an uncomfortable subject. But I guess, too, I, I worry about referenda. Um, I think they're a double-edged sword. Yes, it's a democratic process where the people decide. But you assume that people have a level of knowledge and information in order to be able to make a good decision. And I guess for me, because the subject is one that people shy away from so much, I've, I thought, well, how much do people really know about this? How knowledgeable are they about what the bill is saying, what the implications are for, this, for, for, for our society? So I guess for all those reasons, I thought, well, what I could do is write a play, get it out there in the public domain, and have audiences at least come away and think about it. I'm not, I mean, in the play, I don't, it's not a polemic where I come down and say at the end of the play where people will say, oh, well, Jan obviously believes fervently in euthanasia. I try in the play to uh, canvas many viewpoints through the characters that I have. I mean, it's no good pretending that this isn't a complex issue. It is. And there's a lot of, uh, about people's backgrounds, whether religious or otherwise, that help to form their beliefs uh, or their personal experiences like with me. So I try in the play to canvas a whole range of viewpoints about this issue. And in the end, I just wanted the audience to walk out of the theatre thinking about euthanasia rather than just going into the ballot box and we come to the general election and uh, with no knowledge, you know, ticking or crossing the box. Another irony of irony is that you were unable to put on your play because of, the, of COVID. I know. When death and dying was uppermost in I everybody's know. mind. I know. That was such a frustration. Sure um, we did get one season of the play. We were all set to go down to Dunedin, as you know, to the Fringe Festival. And I was so looking forward to being down there and presenting it in that 
uh, environment um, and hoping that there would be a range of people from the community and from different professions who would come and see the play. So, yes, that was a great disappointment, I have to say. Yes. So where to now with the play? Well, um, I don't know, really. Um, In the end, uh, what we might do is um, maybe do an audio recording of it. It's such a big mission to get something staged, you know, and toured. Um, So we've we played in Palmerston North, we played in Wellington, we were due to do Dunedin, but it might be, I'm just trying to problem solve my way through this, that, um, I mean, play readings can be quite effective, and at least it would get the the information out in that way, so just watch the space, really. Right. And you set your play in a death cafe, yes. which is, of course, how I came to hear of it. Yes. Um, so tell, tell me a bit about why you chose that forum to set it in. Well, um, about five or six years ago, uh, I, uh, you see, I was trained as a dancer and a choreographer, um, and so I'd never really studied playwriting as such. I'd just sort of fallen into it, really. And I thought, well, maybe it would be a good idea if I went and did a playwriting course. So I enrolled in Victoria University um, for a half-year course um, on playwriting. And one of the tasks we were given to do, uh, which was great, was to write a 10-minute play. And so I had to rack my brains and think, what will I, what will I write about? And I must have read somewhere about the Death Cafe movement, and I thought, well, that would be an interesting topic. So I wrote um, this 10-minute play uh, set in a death cafe. Um, And it worked very well as a 10-minute piece. And so then uh, when the whole euthanasia bill thing came forward, I tucked that 10-minute play away in a firebox. And I thought, well, actually, I'll go back and look at that play. So I hauled out my 10-minute play. And I thought, I think I can expand this into a full-length work. And so that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, Jan, I'm very grateful to you because whichever way people wish to vote, they need to do so in an informed way. Mm. And as you say, certainly death is a topic that people often shy away from. So... By producing your play and talking about your play and, of course, your own personal experience, you add to the conversation. Well, I hope so. I guess, too, another thing that I should mention here is that um, I've had my own brush with death, and I guess that's um, informed my viewpoint, too. When I was 48, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And, in fact, it was, I had breast cancer twice in that year. And I had the first diagnosis, and I had a mastectomy. And then later that same year, I had uh, another diagnosis in the other breast. So I had a second mastectomy. So at that stage of my life, um, not the thing you sort of think a 48-year-old would have to face, but I was absolutely confronted with my own mortality. And as a result of that experience... I joined a group up here called BC Survivors. And of course, in that group, uh, we met for quite a few years. Um, Some of those women lost their lives. So people that I had become friends with who had a similar experience 
to myself. Um, I lost them as friends over that period. That galvanized my thinking about death and dying as well because seeing them confront it, I had to sort of confront my own death, and indeed I still do. I mean, that's many years ago, but I only ever consider myself in long-term remission. So it's changed radically my view about life and living and living in the moment and, of course, death. So in some ways... um, that's been a bit of a gift for me as well. It's just given a whole other dimension to my view on this. Well, Jan, thank you so much for telling us about your personal experience, that of your family, and of course, carrying on that conversation into society. So, thank you. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Cafe Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Cafe Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.